Hey there. My name is Aubrey Henderson. I'm a self-worth coach and professional calm in the chaos. I believe that when you're feeling stuck in your life and you can't decide on the next right step, that getting some perspective or a pep talk from someone outside of your shoes can be an absolute game changer. This podcast is that pep talk. Every week, I'll share my responses to listener questions, real life coaching sessions, and interviews about topics that you can connect with and learn from. All things that will help you to reconnect with your own self-worth and inner goodness and vision for your life so you can feel great and get shit done. Welcome to Ask Aubrey. I'm so glad you're here. Hey y'all, so I get a fair amount of questions from folks, either one-offs or, you know, kind of like responses to things that I post about being a foster parent, just a variety of of questions from you or interest or curiosity about um, being a foster parent, how we came to be foster parents, what that process is like, what we struggle with, all of that stuff. And so thought it could be good to just do an episode about being a foster parent. And so that's what we're going to do. I have my fellow foster parent and person I somehow convinced to marry me, my wife, Laura, with me. And so, yeah, I mean, really just thought that we could share a little bit about our own path to becoming foster parents, what it's been like. Um, We, you know, I shared on Instagram this New York Times article that we had kind of big reactions to that, you know, I said that we would record our conversation processing through that. So we'll do that too. And then we also have some questions that you all submitted um, through Instagram about things you wanted to know about foster parenting. So we will answer those too. What do you think about that, Laura? Good plan. Stan? Rock and roll. So... Laura, how did we decide to become foster parents? Oh, wow. Um, So I grew up with a dad who was an adoption attorney. And so I had been familiar with kind of the day-to-day of of what that looks like, of the heartbreak of private adoption versus foster parents versus moms who were incarcerated and the challenges and obstacles there. And I think... I just decided at a pretty young age that being a foster parent was something I would like to do one day. So then when we started dating and being serious and eventually getting married, I kind of pitched the idea to you, not so sure that you would agree or be interested in that at all. But, you know, when you're lesbians, you you know can't really accidentally get pregnant. So you have to have some serious conversations about whether you're going to have children, how you're going to have children, the costs to have children. Um, And somehow I convinced you that foster care was the way to go. That's real. Also, that's to say when you're cisgender female lesbians. That's true. But yes, um, so, you know, based on both of our anatomical setup, we cannot accidentally become pregnant. Um, So anyway, yeah, I mean, I think so for me... I didn't necessarily grow up knowing like, oh, this is how I want to have a family. I actually for a long time didn't think I wanted to have kids at all. Um, it, was until, it wasn't until my mid-20s that I was in a relationship with someone with a 
with a child. Um, and I got to, you know, spend some time getting to know and, and help care for that child that I decided like, oh, maybe I do want kids. And so I thought for a long time I was never going to want kids. Um, but all of that to say, I also, while I was in, when I had moved out of the house, um, we had my, two of my sisters join our family through foster care. And so, you know, it was kind of part of my, my orbit, um, in that way and that my family of origin, um, has been added to by foster care. And so I have two sisters who, who came to us that way. Um, but that wasn't necessarily like, oh, this is something my family does. So I'm going to do it. I think, um, you know, meeting Laura and hearing kind of her connection to it and that she wanted to potentially be a foster parent or to adopt, um, was compelling and interesting to me. And to me, it just was more important that I wanted to be a parent. I wanted to become a parent somehow. And so that's kind of what brought us to foster care. And we, um, you know, we got married in November of 2017. And, you know, in the new year, we are, so Laura and I are not people to like wait on a project we're interested in. Um, we really are like, oh, let's get going on this. And so we we got married in November. We kind of had the holiday season. And then in January, we were like, oh, you know, everything you hear about the process to adopt or become a foster parent or whatever says that this process is going to take forever. So we kind of were like, let's get a jump on it. Let's just get started. Yeah. Let's start the to-do list, you know? It's probably long, right? Totally. So let's check off some boxes. So we get matched up with an agency and we we got matched up with our agency actually through a friend who works there and we we have a massive amount of love for our agency and so if you're if you're New York City based um new alternatives for children is where it's at and you know I'm happy to talk to you more about that um and so is Laura but um you know we started working with our agency and pretty quickly because our agency is amazing they had us signed up to go to an orientation like the following week we went to the orientation, we kind of learned about all of the steps, and I think we, we had a moment where we like put it on pause, and we're like, okay, we're going to like, you know, there's like a whole like packet of information you have to fill out, you kind of do have to like really let people, <laughs> let the agency in on and let, you know, ACS or DCS or whatever ch- child services is called in your, in your state or in your area, you have to really let them in on your life. Um, in some ways, we'll talk about that more. I think somebody wrote in a question about that, so we'll talk about that more. But, you know, we, we kind of put a pause on it for like a couple of weeks. And then we were like, because we were like, oh, the, you know, they told us it can take, the quickest you can kind of go through the process is like six months. And we were like, will we be ready in six months? No, we wouldn't be. Mm-hmm. And we were like, no, so we should wait. Mm-hmm. And then we kind of got sick of waiting. And then we were like, we could get through the process but then we could wait to have a child placed with us, which is fucking hilarious now. Just knowing our our journey with foster care and how we are in response to them wanting to place kids with us, which is we're like, yeah, sure, whatever. Like anything's fine right now. Okay. Yeah. So all that to say, we we did, I mean, it did take us about six months to go through the process from when we actually shorter than that because we really didn't start it in earnest until like February and we were licensed by um, June 30th. June 30th, yeah. But part of the reason why we ended up hurrying up was because uh, ACS had changed the format of their paperwork. Um, and it was the new paperwork was going to be required starting July 1st. So remember, we like hurried up 
to get it in. That's right. So that we didn't have to redo the whole application. That's and right. And transfer all of the information. That's right. So I think ca- our home finding caseworker was really wanted to not have to redo everything. <laughs> and hey, that's understandable because that paperwork sucks. Yeah. So all that to say, we, we you know got certified as foster parents and there's you know, a ton of courses that you go through. There's like something like 40, 50 hours of like classroom. I mean, do you want to just answer that question and go through it? Yeah, that's that's right. So, you know, the what the person wrote to us was, um, you know, what kind of process did you go through to become a foster parent? And really it's, you know, we we reached out to a specific agency we knew we wanted to work with. Now, mm-hmm. depending on where you are, you might need to research what the foster agencies are in your area. There might be like a website directory that you can go through, but we we knew someone at our particular agency. We also work with an agency that um, serves kids who have special um, either medical needs, emotional, behavioral health needs, um, learning disabilities, things like that, but kiddos with like a, a special need of some kind. And a so- diagnosis. Yes, a diagnosis. And so- um, yeah, so we, you know, found our agency that we wanted to work with, reached out. We had like an orientation, which most agencies will have that kind of gives you a, an overview of what the process is going to look like before you dive in, things for you to consider. There's, I think there was an initial application we completed before the training started, mm-hmm. right? I don't remember, but you would have filled that out because you were the one going back and forth well, with that staff member. And there was a, a massive load of paperwork that we had to complete at some point. But I think before we started training, we had filled out a budget because uh, they want to know what your monthly budget is. We sent in a floor plan of our apartment, which I like used free architecture software I found online <laughs> to do, try to do it at scale. Because we didn't have one with our lease. It was not necessary, I don't think. I could have just made it up. Um, and then... And like, they want the floor plan of your apartment because they need to see like how many bedrooms you have. They need to see that you have like the appropriate kind of parameters as determined by children's services in your in your state or your city to yeah. be a foster parent. And like your bedroom the bedroom where the kid sleeps in has to have a window. You know, there has to be enough fire egress probably. I don't know, there's different things that they're looking for. And I think in general they just have to have it on file for you. Yes. Um and then, you know, it asked about our employment history it asked if we would go through a background check, which eventually we did, like an SCR clearance is what it's called in New York. Um, and I think we even answered some questions about like why we wanted to be foster parents, just some initial questions. Yeah. And then after that, I, I think even we did the SCR clearance before we started training. So there were some initial steps before we embarked on like a 60 hour training process. That's right. Before the cl- before they have you sit in the classroom training, they kind of make sure that you're you've got the baseline kind of qualifications to go through it. And now like we are what's called resource foster parents. We are not kinship foster parents. So it, we we're there just to be strangers who are available if there's not another family member or a member in that child's community who can care for them. So our process takes a little bit longer than like a kinship parent. Which would be like if my sister's child went into foster care mm-hmm. and we wanted to become a foster home for that child who was put in foster care, then there's a more expedited process we could go through with the agency where we could maybe have the child in our home already, 
but because the child has been removed by children's services, there have to be like certain parameters where we are working with the agency. We've been trained by the agency on how to care for and support a child who is in foster care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we went through training with some some um, foster parents who were kinship resources. Mm-hmm. Um, so all, maybe, you know, already caring for a child who was um, a relative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And because our agency only provides therapeutic or special medical foster care, we were double certified. So there's like a baseline training you do called the MAP to become a foster parent. And then we also did, is parenting skills training? I think, I think PST parenting skills training, I think is the baseline. And then I think MAP is the above and beyond MAP is what was MAP? I don't know. I don't remember what it stands for, but there's, I'll look it up while you're talking. Um, and so, so we ended up doing like what would have been double the amount of hours in order to be a therapeutic foster home. Um, but I think that was really valuable and it was interesting in our case because we were the youngest people in the room by like 20 years probably. Easily, and we yeah. we were the whitest people in the room. We were in most rooms the only And the we only were the gayest people. people in the room. Definitely the gayest. Which I feel like is not always the experience but was at our agency. And in general the demographics of foster parents uh, are mostly older like grandparent age people. Which is interesting. I think yes. I didn't realize that. Yeah. So I just looked it up. So MAP stands for Model Approach to Partnerships in Parenting. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, neither of them is necessarily about the like specialized, n- neither that nor PST parenting skills training is necessarily about the specialized medical or behavioral need specifically. But parenting skills training is more on the like how to how to work with kiddos, specifically kiddos who have been through the trauma of being placed in foster care. And then um, MAP, Model Approach to Partnerships and Parenting, is more about how to work with biological parents, how to work with, to some extent, like caseworkers, foster, foster agencies, but this idea of like not thinking of biological parents who kiddos have been removed from their homes, not thinking of them as the enemy, not having kind of this stigma or like automatic, you know, assuming negative intention or, you know, just not making assumptions about people and knowing that like real success in foster care is happens when everybody can be working together and like rooting for each other in the interest of the kiddo. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, those were both kind of classroom trainings we went through with other foster parents mm-hmm. in kind of a cohort experience. And so one of them was like across a couple of Saturdays. We did like a 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. on a Saturday kind of experience. And then one of them was like a 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. every Thursday. Yeah, something like that. Um, but, I mean, every agency is different in how they how they offer that. Ours was, was done in-house. It was The training was done by staff at the agency. Um, who we then, of course, got to know really well. I'll tell you, we learned some really helpful tools in that training. Yes. Um, Like my favorite one is that you need to give three praises for every critique that you give to a child, and a praise must be pure and specific. So you can't say, like, you did this great, but 
Otherwise, it undermines your praise. Yeah, totally. Um, and I feel like, especially with kids with this, with the trauma of being removed from their parents, um, giving them just like a lot of confidence boost and like, thank you for doing that, and you did that so great, and I'm proud of you. It really opens them up. It's yeah. amazing. And so, you know, while we're going through that classroom training and, or maybe it was after the classroom training, then, you know, we have a caseworker um, at our uh, agency, it's called the home finding department, but a caseworker who's responsible for kind of getting you through the whole certification licensing process. Um, This person has been with us through training, getting all of our paperwork together, and um, they also conduct a home visit. And so you'll hear a lot of foster parents talk about the home visit. But basically, you know, they have the floor plan of your home. We submitted that at the beginning of the process, but they come walk through your home and they let you know like what the requirements are for your home to be approved. And so there are things like all of your smoke detectors have to be working. If you're on multiple floors, you have to have a smoke detector on both floors. If you have, oh, excuse me, if you have, um, outlets you need to have outlet covers you you know a thing in new york is that we had radiators and you know we were opening our home potentially to littler kids so we needed um radiator covers which was an interesting weird thing to find ones that weren't hideous and that mm-hmm. i was okay with um and they're expensive and they are expensive you we had to um lock all any of our like um our like cleaning supply cabinets we had to put like child proof locks on we had to um, have a fire extinguisher. Yes, have our own fire extinguisher inside of our apartment. So we couldn't have one. The one in the hallway didn't count. Um, knives and alcohol and medication and stuff like that all had to be like way up out of reach, you know, things like that. And so, you know, the um, the caseworker had to come kind of like walk through and check all of that stuff. And then... Um, Personal... In- Ah, yeah. So then we had to sit down and do like an extensive kind of personal history interview, each of us individually and then together with the with the social worker with, you know, they asked about why you wanted to become a foster parent. They asked about kind of your upbringing, your experience, how you were disciplined growing up, any kind of traumatic experiences you might have had if you ever were abused growing up, like a pretty personal your religion interview. Yeah, they asked about your religion, how you would um, you know, how you would honor a child's religion if it was different from yours. Um, yeah, a lot of interesting stuff. And then, oh, sorry, y'all, I'm yawning a lot. Then, oh, we, so we had to go through, a part of our agency is that we have to go through, um, an LGBT, um, LGBTQ competency training, which it's required by the state for which, all foster parents, which we LOL'd at for LOL. ourselves. We were like, we jokingly many times were like, do we get to like audit this one? Like, I promise we'll be affirming. But also, I mean, it's pretty cool that that's required um, because we, you know, we know that that's something that there is, there are a ton of queer children that are in foster care and are not always treated well. And so to have that be something that is really intentional um, was really cool. And, and so in New York, you we actually had to sign a pledge that we would be an affirming home. And if you do not sign the pledge, you cannot be a foster parent. Yeah, that's dope. And that's not true everywhere. Um, so that was part of it too. I'm trying to think about what else. 
So that was it. And then every year for us to get recert, we have to get recertified every June. Um, and for that, we have to have gone through a certain number of hours of training, which we, you know, there's trainings, like you can do webinars for that. You just have to have certificates of completion. Um, the agency provides training throughout the year. That's right. Um, but yeah, so that's something we have to submit all of our documentation for that. And then, you know, we have to have our home walked through again. Yeah, the home finder does come out again. It's interesting because when you, when you have kids placed in your home, you have at a minimum monthly visits from the caseworker. Um, and we also, because we're in the special medical program, have a nurse who comes. And then if we had other behavioral needs, we could have behavioral specialists come. Behavioral specialists come. And so people are in and out of your house. You lose track of who's coming and why. Yes. But yeah, they did come to recertify her. Yeah, they did. (laughs) Well, and you know, it became a whole thing too when we, you know, we moved mid year into a new apartment. And so we had to have them come look at our new apartment and make sure everything was good to go. Um, So you do kind of get comfortable with people kind of being in your business a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was all kind of the process for us to get certified. And I will say, on our last day of certification, like of we were in our last training, which was our LGBTQ competency training, we did get pulled out a few minutes early because they were like, we have a kid for you today. Mm-hmm. Are you, like, you ready for this? <laughs> so, um, you know, it's, but different people have different experiences with that. But that's all to say we kind of got to the end. And when we had said, you know, we're going to be certified by the end of June, but like we might, you know, we might end up not having a We won't say yes to a kiddo until September. That's not really, that wasn't really that the That was case. realistic. That was really well, silly because we, you know. I mean, pretty much the minute you're certified, the placement specialist is going to start calling you. And yes. We are now good friends with the placement person at our agency. Yes. We love her dearly. And when she calls, you know there's one goal. And it's to see if you're willing or unable to take a certain child. That's right. Um, and so you, we can obviously say no. We can take time to think about it often. Mm. Um, but once they start telling you a story of the kid and you know you're certified and you know you have a room and you've been doing all this preparation and planning in order to be able to say yes, why are you going to say no just for an arbitrary two months to wait time? That's right. And so I guess the other thing too... Oh, man, what was I going to say? We... um. Oh, we had to specify the, our age range. Mm-hmm. There's like kind of a questionnaire of like, what are you open to in terms of a placement? And so it's like kids of what age? And so there are some people who would say, you know, I have my own biological children and I only want kids who are younger than them. Or, you know, I have two little boys, so I want, you know, I would want another boy for them mm-hmm. to play with or whatever. Um, some people have really specific specifications. We went kind of on the broader end. I think we said five and up thinking like, school age because mm-hmm. you know Laura and I both work full time mm-hmm. so you know we we were going to be able to figure it out if the kiddos were in school so we said five and up um now our first placements were three and four a sibling pair um but they ask you you know are you open to multiple kids like if it's a sibling group that they want to keep together are you open to multiple kiddos are you open to um they ask if you're open to like expectant mothers like Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a or young person who's moms. in, yes, like a young person who's in foster care, but also is pregnant. Um, they ask if you're open to that, which we said yes. Um, 
or if you're open to like a yeah like a parent who has given birth and so it's a it's a parent who's in foster care and their child um they ask one at our agency because there is the special medical component you sit down with a nurse and you go through all of the different kind of common health conditions or you know needs that kiddos might have and you it was this really I mean it was kind of like a mind fuck of an experience if I'm being honest to like have someone go through this list and be like are you comfortable with this here's the care kind of required and so like there were some things for us that automatically got ruled out because we lived in an apartment that was only accessible by stairs Mm -hmm. so basically any kid that wasn't able to ambulate themselves kind of was was not going to be a possibility for us but you know there was like there were questions about like you know some kiddos had like would you be comfortable with a kid who you know has a pick line um would you be comfortable with a child who is nonverbal? would you be comfortable with you know a child who has diabetes and you have to help them administer you know their insulin like different you know just different things and talking about the management of that and if we'd be open to it. But it seems like most common in what we've seen in kids who, who are at the agency and who could be in our house, granted that we have stairs, um, but it's mostly like asthma or diabetes or um, then behavioral needs like ADD, ADHD, you know, different emotional disorders, um, things like that. So, yeah. I mean, they do have kids in their program that have cancer or that have much more serious health needs. But for most of ours are things that, like, you know, we knew people growing up who had asthma. Like, literally, all, a lot of those things are just me. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, when they asked us about asthma, I was like, yes, I can handle asthma. Like, I have asthma, have a sibling with asthma, you know, all that. So that was another element for ours is they kind of asked us those criteria. But, um... All of that said, like, depending on your agency, you might still get calls um, for kids who kind of fall outside of that. And for us now, our staff at our agency know us well. Mm-hmm. And so they kind of will call us and be like, we thought of you for this child. And, you know, with our with our agency and what we'll tell our friends who are foster parents with other agencies, because we, we became friends with a couple who um, got certified shortly after we did and they got their first phone call. And they texted us and kind of were like, what like, what tips do you have when you get that call? And for us, it's like between Laura and I, we know what our like five or six questions are that we are going to ask about a child. Once they've kind of given us the rundown is like, okay, depending on their age, like have they been, now that we have kids in our home, we have a five-year-old and a six-year-old here, um, you know, have they been with kids that age? Mm-hmm. Um, and have they done well with other kids? Because if we're bringing another child into our home, we have to you know, be knowledgeable about how they've done with other kids. And it, it has to be a safe situation for everybody. You know, um, the, there's also always a question of like, can they, can they get upstairs? We live upstairs. There's a question of, you know, are they allergic to dogs or cats? Or are they afraid of dogs or cats? Have they been around animals? Um, and much more practically, like, what is their visit schedule with their parents? Yes. You know, if it's more than twice a week, we probably can't handle that. If it, we would prefer if it's on the same day of the visits as our other kids, you yes. know. Um, what is the situation with the parents, you know? What's, what's the status the of their, what's the status of their case? Um, and what school are they in? What after school are they 
in? Are they going to be moving schools? Are we going to be busing? Like very logistically practical questions. But then what we say is like we have those questions, but then we're never going to say, unless it's an absolute emergency on a short-term thing, we're not going to say yes or no to a long-term scenario on the spot. And, you know, the agency staff are very understanding. They know that. Um, But we're going to sleep on it. We're going to talk to each other. And then after we get off the call, we're going to come up with our list of questions that we've generated as we kind of marinate on it together. The things that are like, oh, shit, I wish I would have asked that. We capture them kind of in like a note on our phone or whatever. So when we have the follow-up conversation the next day, we have those questions. Um, And usually that follow-up meeting is with the caseworker on that case. Yep. And the home finder who may have been involved previously and the placement specialist. So it ends up being like a meeting of the minds. That's right. And so we can kind of get all of those questions answered. But then another thing we we said to those, those foster parents is like, you can say no. And it doesn't make you a bad foster parent to say no to a placement. And I think that's something that like when you've done, like Laura was saying, when you've done all this training, when you've done all this work to like get yourself ready to be a foster parent to a kid, then when they call you about one and it doesn't feel like a right fit or like your gut is saying no, then it, you know, can feel bad to say no. But, you know, if if you're not going to be the best fit for that kid, then it's it's the it's the right decision to say no. Totally. So I think there's that. So that kind of answers the what were the steps you had to take question. So somebody asks um, about, you know, the financial piece of being a foster parent. So myths and facts, how financially well off should I be to foster? So we were just talking actually to our, our agency's recruitment person about this. And she said that actually like a ton of the foster parents at our agency are, you know, they receive public assistance, they are oftentimes they're unemployed um, or retired. It like kind of runs the gamut. And so really what they're looking for is that like when they ask you about a budget, they're not looking for you to make a certain amount of money. They're looking for you to be able to say like, I have income that is that is stable, whatever income level that is at, um, that you have income that is stable and that you have income that covers your expenses. And so there's that. I mean, I think people have a lot of these like myths about foster care that like all foster parents, and I can't, I mean, I can't speak for everybody. I'm sure there are people who do this. I mean, we encountered somebody in our training who talked about how, you know, at our agency you get quote paid more to take care of kids with higher needs, but then you can just get them a nurse and not have to like deal with them all day or like something, somebody said something really awful and it was kind of from this place of like, I'm doing this for money to like make money and to not have to like work for money or something. And like really, I mean, that's that's not the reason to become a foster parent. There are ways to make money that are f- far less emotionally intensive and, and you know, taxing. And also being a foster parent, you don't make money. I we mean, what, money. what happens is that, you know, the um, the state basically provides you a stipend every month. It's also called the child's board rate. And what that is meant to do is to cover, you know, the cost of, to some extent, probably the cost of housing for that child. Also, the cost of food, the cost of clothes, like a very kind of basic level stipend. And then at our agency, there are 
different levels based on the level of need for the child. So if the child, you know, is example, for example, if the child uses a wheelchair, they offer a higher stipend because the assumption is that you're going to need to get around, you know, in vehicles and, you know, um, that you're not going to be able to take public transit. That might be the lower cost option. Um, or that you're going to have more medical appointments to get to. There's going to be kind of like a more labor-intensive, more time-intensive component. Um, but kind of the basic level board rate, and for a child who doesn't necessarily have a special need, is is basically enough to cover like them having a bed in a home and them eating and maybe getting a few new clothing items. That's basically what that board rate covers. Mm-hmm. And so when people talk about making money through foster care, and that's part of what, you know, why that notion is kind of evil is that if you're making money through foster care, it means you're not meeting a child's basic needs. And so what f- the foster care board rate does is it offsets kind of the costs of caring for that child because that child is in the care of the state. And so the state is is covering those costs that the foster parents are incurring and it's kind of they're kind of like reimbursing you for it is really the way to think about it. And so all of that is to say, like, you don't necessarily need to be financially well off to be a foster parent. I think there is, like, you do need to have kind of some some, some income stability. Mm-hmm. There is flexibility that you need to have in terms of, like, you know, with work, potentially, mm-hmm. depending on, you know, if you're doing this as a single person, if you're doing it with a partner or with a family member who's sharing responsibility with you. Um, because there are, you know, depending on the age and the situation of your child, you could be having to take them, you know, our kids have two visits a week with their biological family. One of our kiddos has three visits a week, um, that we're responsible to getting them to and from. Um, and you know, for me, I have a slightly modified work schedule one day a week, uh, to be able to do that. And that's something I had to work out with my employer. Um, but so that's a consideration really. But it's not about an income thing. I mean, we're asking this recruitment staff person at our agency, like, you know, I think, Laura, you said you asked, like, what are you really looking for in a foster parent? Yeah. And what was it that she said again? I mean, she talked to me more about, like, character, personal characteristics. Like, what is your, the quality of your character? Are you a person of empathy? Are you going to think about your child and their family and what they're going through with compassion or are you going to play into the myths you know that these kids are irredeemable um which is so awful but so many people have that idea that like you these kids cannot be loved um and loved well and so can you walk into it and have an open mind and have an open heart towards these kids and then second you know it requires a lot of patience and it's not just patience and parenting but it's patience with the process you know some parents some foster parents do not want to adopt and so they're only going to have you know respite or short-term medium-term placements because if if the kid does not return to parent then they need to be in a pre-adoptive home the goal of the system is permanency so they don't want kids bouncing around from different homes um but then if you're if you want to be an adoptive parent there you know the the process requires concurrent planning so they are planning for the kid to return to parent and they're planning for the kid to be adopted by you and both of those conversations are happening at the same time even while there's a trial going on to terminate the parents rights 
even while they're not following their plan at all. Like, the system is designed so that they have a chance and you're the backup plan. Yeah. And so to deal with that, to be to know that, like, you are there and you are doing your best and you're caring for the kid every day, and yet still you're the number two on the priority list. I think that to be able to, to emotionally handle that and to be patient with that is asking a lot. And it's hard. I mean, like, and Laura and I went into this kind of, you know, like, understanding a lot of that to some extent and not through experience but through like on an intellectual level like we got that but I think to really live that is is really fucking hard and like that's I'm gonna be honest like the the hardest part and the most meaningful part to me of being a foster parent and like of course it's it's loving our kids I mean I I love our kids beyond what I ever thought to be possible and also, I think the the part that, like, makes me ugly cry about being a foster parent is the relationship I have with our kid's mom. Like, that, because that piece feels more hard fought. I think with our kids, it's like, it, you know, we have two adorable, cute little, I mean, if you've ever met them, they're the cutest kids on the planet. They're sweet, they're funny, and they're kids. So it's kind of easy to be like, oh, we're we're doing this for the kids, we're in it for the kids, and you are, right? This is about getting the best outcome for the kids, but like you're also in it for their families of origin. And the reality is like, if you're going into foster care to be like, I'm going to save these kids from the families who have, you know, done terrible things or whatever. And that's like your very basic view of it. Like you're not getting the nuance. And sometimes that is the case. Sometimes, you know, a bio parent has like done awful, awful evil things. And sometimes a bio parent is a person who has had a tragic thing happen to them, who's dealing with their own trauma, who's working through their own shit, and who also is a person and who you're also rooting for. And like really being able to be a great foster parent, in my belief, is being able to hold all of those things. To say like, uh, if mom can get it together and if mom can take all of these really hard steps to be able to be reunified with her kids. And if she can do all of these things, I'm going to root for her. I am going to be proud of her. And I am going to cry like a baby if the kids don't live with us anymore. But if they go to live with mom, that's something to celebrate. It's something to grieve and something to celebrate at the same time. And then to know that if that doesn't happen for mom, if mom's rights are terminated and she doesn't have rights to her kids anymore, that I also then have a responsibility to kind of, you know, figure out how we're going to maintain that relationship because just because mom doesn't have parental rights anymore doesn't mean that she doesn't love her kids doesn't mean that the kids don't love her and so to think about that as kind of like that's a big responsibility and that's part of what not being afraid of that is what makes I think can make someone a great foster parent okay so we had this question Um, where somebody asked, how do you cope with the idea of potentially having to let them go after getting attached? I mean, I think the biggest thing we do is feel your feelings. Yeah, I mean, so I'm in therapy. That's important to me. Like, I I try to avoid being sad at all costs, so my, my therapist forces me to, like, really sit in those feelings, which I hate, but it's, is a reality. I think it's, it's basically, it goes like this. And this is what I always say is that I am more comfortable with me as a self-actualized and somewhat emotionally self-aware adult 
I am more confident in my ability to hold grief and to survive grief. I'm I'm more comfortable with that than the idea of withholding my full love and connection and attachment from a child who has been through trauma, who has been hurt, who is uncertain, who has had some instability. I would rather give all of myself to that child and to loving that child and connecting with that child at risk of myself being heartbroken because I know I can survive heartbreak. Mm -hmm. I don't know that a child, especially a child who has been through trauma, can survive not having healthy, loving attachment. That's right. Yeah. And so I think, I mean, I think I've accepted, like, my world would be shattered if, we can, you know, we have to say goodbye to one of our kids. And that, like, it's inevitably going to happen because we're kind of in this for the long haul as foster parents, right? Like, mm-hmm. but I believe I can survive mm-hmm. my heart being shattered. And I also believe that if a child is no longer with me, often that's going to mean they were reunified with a biological parent, And I believe that while I will be grieving, this is not to negate that I'll be grieving, I will also have something to celebrate in that. Mm -hmm. Amen. Okay. And then this last question that we got, how did your families react to you two wanting to foster parent? So, I mean, for me, um, and Laura, up to you if you want to share about this one, but I mean, for me, because my because my mom has been a foster parent, was one before me, she very much was supportive um, and kind of had her own insight to offer through the process, was very um, very much kind of comparing it to her what her own experience was like in a different state, um, going through it differently. And so, yeah, so I think they were very supportive. I think what's been more interesting is actually how our friends have responded mm. to this. And I think largely because... I I think, you know, very well-meaning people in my life who love me a lot and who love the kids a lot say stuff that is just so offensive sometimes. And, like, one of those things being – and I don't want to say offensive. It's not like they're saying something nasty, but it's something that is, like, so in opposition to kind of what we believe, which is that, you know, I'll share with people who are close to me, and I try not to share, you know, the details of my kids' stories with just anybody – Um. But I will share with, you know, our friends, people who are close to us who ask for updates on what's going on. And people will say, well, I hope they get to stay with you. Like, I hope they get to stay with you. I hope that, you know, they don't go with mom or they don't go with dad. Um, and that the the parental rights are terminated. Hmm. And I don't think they realize that that's a hateful thing to say. Totally. Like, I don't think they realize that that, you know, in we've spoken with our children's attorneys and termination of parental rights, which is shortened to be be called TPR. They call it the death penalty of child welfare. Mm -hmm. It, it, It means that you lose all rights to your child. And so to wish that upon anybody, and I think people don't realize this is hateful. And I also think that like what people are doing is they're saying, you know, they, the kids have a good life with you. they, seem happy with you, like, I don't, you know, want them to be taken away from you. But, like, there is such trauma in that, in the idea of not being able to be reunified with your family of origin, even if we want to celebrate us getting to love them forever. It's... Well, I think there's a misconception that one home or one trajectory in life is easier than the other. 
Yes. And I think people view foster kids as such victims, which in many circumstances they are. They're victims of many things, you know, their physical abuse potentially, neglect, emotional abuse, the trauma of being removed, um, the trauma of having to go to family visits, honestly. That is, is quite an overwhelming emotional experience. Um, but but just because they're in our house does not make any of that history easier. That's does right. not mean the trauma is not still in their body. Does not mean that the the separation is not going to affect them long term. Does not mean the fact that like we have approached life through a lens of whiteness, conscious and unconscious, right? Right. And that that adds its own level of difficulty that maybe if their family of origin is a different culture, they wouldn't have to deal with the problems of whiteness. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, you know, or, or like we're, we're transracial foster parents. So there's a gap. Yeah. You know, there's, there's going to be, if we have kids long term, they're going to have to grapple with their racial identity in a different way than if they were in a, a home That's that right. matched their race. And there's ways that we have a responsibility to be more intentional and more aware and do a lot more continuous kind of self-work and self-education to make sure that we are navigating that thoughtfully with mm-hmm. our kids and in a way that that honors their identity and their culture and their upbringing um, in a way that, you know, if we were parenting kids of the same race, we, we wouldn't have to be mindful of in the same way. Correct. Yeah. But, you know, but also you should approach parenting any child in a holistic way. So often, you know, we if there's a class difference, if there's a regional difference, like whatever separation there might be between you and their family of origin you need to be bridging that gap for them and that's helping right. them understand who they are where they come from wh- where they can draw inspiration for their life that's right and not not being so egocentric on like making it about you as the parent but thinking about what's best for the child and honoring kind of their origins and that is actually a nice segue into talking about this article that we had so many feelings about so this is this was um an article that was in um the new york times it was published on january 17th and so the title is why aren't there more rich foster parents which i think is an interesting and like misleading title anyway so this is if you're listening to this this is in my um it's linked in my instagram bio if you go to the link in my bio it's like the top link is a link to this article if you want to read it but you know, babe, what's, what summary would you give for this stuff? Okay, so the article is asked this question, why aren't there more rich foster parents? And the subhead blames it on bureaucracy, that bureaucracy gets in the way of expanding the pool of volunteers. And as you get into it, you know, it talks about some foster kids who bounced around the system, who had some pretty um, intense traumas in the yep. system. It talks about like ACS and changes that they've made to reduce the number of kids in care through prevention. And then it talks about um, this question of why aren't there more wealthy folks serving in the system? And at one point it says, quote, it would be easy to say that the problem lies with the selfish habits of the upper classes. (laughs) However charitable they might be when it comes to writing checks to well-meaning foundations, they are all too happy to insulate themselves from the messiness of life beyond the bubble. And then it provides this example of a photographer 
who, you know, learned about fostering through her church, who did the training, and then... Lives in a Brooklyn brownstone. Yeah, and then, you know, the agency that she wanted to work with uh, ultimately rejected her as a foster parent because she travels for work. And uh, and they didn't think that that would be in the best uh, position for the child. And even though she had backups... um, she was rejected and didn't get a placement. And so obviously that person was disappointed and upset and maybe a little bit confused about why that happened. Yep. And it basically goes on to talk about how there are, there are plenty of folks who, you know, would, would want to be foster parents, but they don't live in the same location as, you know, where kids are coming from that are in Mm -hmm. foster care and that, you know, it says basically like, you know, rich people don't live where poor people live. Literally, wealthier people don't live where poor people do. That's a quote. Yeah. And so this idea that, you know, if they want to keep kids in the communities that they come from, that they're not going to place them in wealthy foster homes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is, it, I mean, it's an interesting article. And we just, we had a lot of feelings about it. And so I guess let's start at the very top. Okay. Okay. okay let's do it. So one... You know, the, I think we can blame a lot in the world about government bureaucracy. I think that is generally a politicized way of viewing government. So it reveals some hidden biases about how you're approaching this topic to ultimately immediately br- blame it on bureaucracy. <laughs> um, and second, like we're talking about child welfare. So there's this huge history of public policy in child welfare that is largely reactionary to kids dying in care. Yes. And it's also now becoming much more aware and reacting to evidence-based practices and what actually helps kids. And there's much more of a focus on resiliency there's much more focus on like being trauma informed and having these approaches, you know, particularly because our experiences with therapeutic foster care, you know, there's just a lot more psychological support for kids and for families. And, you know, the system has changed so much in the last 20, 30 years um, and really for the better. Yeah. So to blame it on bureaucracy and to blame, you know, <laughs> an agency asking about somebody's travel and making that look ridiculous that they would care about, you know, whether you're going to be in and out and be fully present to a kid, like that's a reasonable question. And obviously we don't know all the circumstances of this person's story and there's probably much more to it, but on the face of it, from our experience, one of our kids is particularly anxious, and when we travel, it affects her. That's right. So that's that's you know a real bit of information to understand, like how your schedule could shape a child's life. That's so right. first, I'm a little bit upset about the bureaucracy thing. I'm also upset about the even the whole framing of the question of like why aren't more rich people involved? <laughs> and if we step back and we think about what when rich people are being altruistic, when they are giving, quote unquote, what do they give to? And far and away they give to cultural and academic institutions like Harvard, like the Central Park Conservancy, that is not 
giving to the general public. Like, they are giving to prestige organizations, and they're imbuing themselves with power. And they're imbuing culture, and, and a particular culture that serves wealthy people um, with more resources. And they're setting up prestigious endowments. And, and you know... If you want to get extreme, some of them are literally like whitewashing their reputations with this giving. So for the most part, when rich people give, they're not giving to community-based organizations and they are not giving to improve communities of people who are in lower economic classes than they are. And so if if they're not giving their money to community-based services, why would they be giving their time and effort? Like, just from the beginning, on the face of it, the question is laughable. Because do you know who gives to community-based organizations? Poor people. Yep. People who rely on those services. People for whom those services have made a life-changing difference. And you know who are foster parents? Usually grandmothers whose, like, kids and grandkids need their support. And they have more love to give, and so they bring in more foster kids. That's right. And I think what's, you know, what's striking to me about this, and we've talked about this, Laura, is, like, the entitlement that that is apparent here. And, like, this is not to say I don't know this person that they they quote here. Um, But there is this sense of, like, of entitlement. I mean, what the person says is, like, this person who was rejected because of the travel schedule says, if we want children out of the system and in flourishing homes, which in and of itself, I have a problem with that already. If we want children out of the system and in flourishing homes, we have to look at a situation uniquely versus systematically. We have to take into account that holistic and loving homes many times include parents who travel, but also have a great deal of love to give. And okay, while I agree with that sentiment, what that also dismisses is this idea of like trauma-informed care, of a need for stability for a child who's in foster care. It also dismisses out of hand that there could have been another reason why they rejected this person. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't take that into consideration, although, again, I don't know this case. There is this, and we've heard this talking to other foster parents, and just to call a thing a thing, primarily other white, upper-middle-class foster parents, yeah. this idea that this system needs to bend to meet my needs. That, you know, and let me be clear. We have had our fair share of frustrations with the bureaucracy of the foster care system, of the hoops we have to jump through. It is not easy. But the reality is that, like, there is this entitlement that you cannot bring in to -mm. being a foster parent. There is this love, this, like, you know, we've heard foster parents talk about this feeling of, like, you know, I went above and beyond and, you know, nobody's thanked me for it. Mm. And the reality is, like, you cannot go into this with a desire to be a, a savior of some kind. You're not going to go into this and then get surprised if you are not identified as, and I mean, that's what I think is underneath this to me, is that this person is like, well, I've gone into this thinking that I'm the prime candidate, that they would just love me and bend over backwards for me Mm. to be a foster parent. And they rejected me? Like, they rejected me? I was a well-meaning white person trying to come in and, like, do the right thing here to get kids, quote, out of the system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When the reality is, you can't go into foster care like, let me get these kids out of the system because guess what? 
the number one goal of foster care is reunification. It's putting kids back with their families. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe that's out of the system in terms of being in the care of the state, sure. But the reality is, like, we you can't go into it with that mentality, with that entitlement that, you know, the the systems and processes and policies that are in place, the, quote, arbitrary bureaucracy is going to change to suit you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I mean, I'm really, we just... The world does not need more white saviors. <laughs> we do not need more white people going and gentrifying and changing communities and then trying to save the poor people who are being pushed out, who are doing whatever they can to cope, who can't afford the city anymore. Like, we don't need you coming back and then stealing their kids. That's right. And, you know, and like, I think obviously we're white people who are foster parents. So I don't want to come off as hypocritical by having this conversation we are we are comfortable economically white people Mm -hmm. with many privileges um and i think the best we can do is to try to be aware of that at all times when engaging with our kids with our agency with bio parents like the best we can do is try to meet them where they are and learn and soak up information and help provide like continuity for our kids um and I think you know the system like the system of foster care is broken in many ways but it's always going to be broken because humans are broken and and what we're doing is trying to create a community resource for families that are struggling yeah in some way. I think, and I probably made a face just when you said humans are broken, just because I think we, one, I think you and I mean something different probably by when we say that. And I don't, I don't think I agree with that sentiment that humans are broken, but I think it is a, I think of it as an inherently broken system that's not going to not be broken because it is, trauma is inherent in foster care. Yeah. It is. And so people, you know, talk about like our agency is working with kids who have special needs but the reality is like any kid who is in foster care has experienced massive trauma. Mm-hmm. Families are experiencing trauma that is often intergenerational trauma. And, you know, foster care is often something that is related to poverty, mm-hmm. to intergenerational poverty in the way that we punish people for existing in poverty. Mm-hmm. And so like the, it is a system that is, yes, is broken in so many ways. And so to go into it expecting that, you know, you can wave around your privilege and entitlement mm-hmm. and, you know, have it be met and have people kind of bend to your will is ignorant. And so I think that's part of why we reacted to this, which is also to say, like, you know, we have a ton of people in our lives who are of similar kind of economic, educational, racial and identity profiles as we are, who have expressed interest in becoming foster parents and who are kind of you know, wary of it or who are, you know, timid or worried. And I think like to, you know, to wrap us up, like what I would just, and I'm curious, Laura, what you would say to those people. But I think to me, if you are willing to go in with a healthy dose of humility and willing to learn and receive feedback and not be right and, 
you know, go into it with the intention of providing love and support to families Mm -hmm. and knowing that it's not fucking about you. Yeah. Then you'll be okay. Mm -hmm. And if you, I mean, if you know us and even hell, if if you're listening to this and you don't, like, you have a support system already, even if it's the two of us. Mm -hmm. Like reach out to us if you I mean if you're listening to this and you're already a foster parent you're like damn like I want to talk to these two more about this like reach out if you're thinking about it reach out Mm -hmm. because that's also the main thing you need you need kind of your own sense of being willing to to learn and grow and be wrong and fuck it up and figure it out Mm -hmm. and you also just need support yeah which I mean having you babe is the best support that I can have I literally could never do it without this gal right here anything else you would share with folks well I think that's the thing I say most often and it's also the most corny thing I've ever said (laughs) is that this is the best thing we could be doing with our lives I'm just convinced that showing up and loving people and being the best advocates we can with the opportunities we have and being patient yeah um is this is the best thing we could do and it's messy and it's stressful and it's all the things that it is but like I just don't there's nothing better I think that we could do with our lives that's right thank you so much for listening to this episode If you loved it, please take a second to subscribe on your favorite platform, leave a rating or a review, and take a screenshot and share it on social media or with a friend who needs to hear a message like this one. I love the chance to hear from you and connect with you because it gives me the opportunity to remind you that you are worthy, worthy of wholeness and happiness and just good things. So send me the question or the topic that's keeping you up at night or that you just want to hear more about, you can send me a voice memo at anchor.fm slash Aubrey Henderson. And I can actually include any voice memos that you send me in the show, which I think is pretty rad. Or you can send a good old fashioned written message from my website at aubreyhenderson.com. I'll see you next time, babes.